0: If I was being a little too loud, my grandparents would say, the walls have ears. Don't blab our business everywhere.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Dria Hahn was born in Czechoslovakia in 1980. Her mother was a secretary and her father was an engineer but refused to join the communist party and this was a source of tension in Dria's family. She was partly raised by her grandparents and her grandmother shared stories about growing up in the Protectorate, the name given to the area of Czechoslovakia occupied by the Germans in World War II. Priya tells of a typical Czech childhood, her school friends, fond memories of school trips and summers at their country house. However a more sinister side of life was getting in trouble for being chatty and being cautioned with the phrase Wolves have ears. Now I could really do with your help to continue to track down these unknown stories of the Cold War and ensure that they are preserved. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to pledge a small monthly amount per month to help keep us on the air, although larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get the Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly supporter and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Andrew and I'm very proud to support Cold War Conversations with a small donation each month because Ian's put together such a brilliant range of interviews just go to coldwarconversations.com donate. If you can't wait for next week's episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where guests and listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. We're also on Twitter at at Cold War Pod and Instagram at at Cold War Conversations. Now back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Drea Harm to our Cold War Conversation.
0: You know, I love studying history. Um, I live in the United States and I study Revolutionary War history. And what I've noticed is that the mundane, everyday things, they very rarely get recorded. No, it, it, It's just your regular life, you know, how you do the laundry, things like that. No one ever talks about it. But from a historian's point of view, those are the things that a lot of us are very much interested in. So I've been listening to all of the stories that people have been telling. And, you know, I've noticed a little bit, uh, those those of us who live through it, we take certain things for granted. But for those who haven't, especially Westerners, you know, they open up a whole lot of questions and a whole lot of misconceptions. So um, I kind of hope to help people out with a little bit of that
1: we do cover a fair number of spies and military stories and things like that. And some people can think it was all, you know, drama and espionage. But as you and I know, people were just getting on with their lives.
0: Yeah, um, you know, it, that is the thing. It's, it's very interest, easy to think about it that you divide people into good and bad. Um, you know, fervent communists, there's spies, there's dissidents, but those kinds of people were the exception rather than the rule. Most of people were just like you and me, just regular people going to work, trying to have a good living, trying to take care of their children, worrying about dinner, um, and just trying to get by. And there are a lot of subtle nuances. You know, it's complicated. It kind of applied to most situations. And we're, we're going to go over, I hope, a little bit later about just how interconnected. Um, you know, political beliefs and your daily life were because I think Westerners don't understand that connection a lot of times because I know, especially here in the US, politics is kind of a separate ball of wax and doesn't necessarily have anything to do with where you work or who your friends are and things like that. Um, but that definitely was not the case in a lot of the Eastern Bloc.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think you're right there. You've pinpointed probably the, the, the major difference between, and I, I, you know, not keen on using the word, but what regular ordinary people's experience in Eastern Europe versus ordinary people's experience in, in the West. And, and we'll uh, go into more detail Mm -hmm. um, about that in, in the course of our conversation with you. What what I wanted to, do was just start with a bit of background on your family. Can you can you tell me about your your parents and, and grandparents?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, we were kind of just the garden variety Czech family. Um, my mother's grandparents, they were from an area near the German border. My grandmother was born in 1932, my grandpa 1930. So they grew up in that quote-unquote sedaten land area, and they lived under the protectorate um, until World War II. So they, they settled in an area that was about an hour's drive away from Dresden, which was in the GER, and it was about 40 minutes away from der which people now know as the ghetto and the concentration camp. So there were families kind of in that area. Um, they got married in 1952. And I've always been a history fan, so I'm always asking questions. I always want stories. And neither of them ever talked about the war. Um, you know, the most you'd get out of them was it was war, things were bad. Um, and maybe two stories, uh, and, and that was it. So, you know, I've always been very, very curious, it was always the kid that was pestering them. And they just, they wouldn't. Um, and I, I found out later that that wasn't uncommon for people of their generation. Um, they, they really did live through some some terrible things, especially up in that area. Um, you know, my, my grandfather's mother, she died when he was very young. And looking at our, my little um list, which I'll explain that later, but it's like a birth certificate that Czech people have. Um, you know, I you can see her name on that. It was Marie Mueller, which Mueller tends to be a German name. And, you know, learning about the World War II and after events in that area. I really wonder what the full story was, um, because the Czech treatment of sudeten Germans after the war was, you know, there were massacres. There was a mass expulsion. It, it wasn't good. So um, that's all I really know about them. Um, they got married. My uncles and my mother were born in the 50s, and then I came along in
1: 1980. So. And uh, you, although you, you say that there, there were f- hardly any anecdotes, I think your, your grandma did share one with you about a hot dog.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, so hot dogs, you know, when we say hot dog, we, it's, it's those Viennese links. And then there's sausages. Now it it nineteen. She was born in 1932, so she was, you know, she was about ten or ten or so when things got pretty pretty bad. Um, and the house there were air raids, and everybody in the family had a job. You know, just like a fire drill for modern families, you kind of had if there's an air raid, this is what everybody in the family does. So my grandmother's job was to run to the bread box, grab all the bread any food she could find dump it in a sack and then meet the rest of her family at the shelter so she said one time she was just she happened to be walking down the hallway and she was eating a hot dog and meat was rather scarce at this time so she was really enjoying this thing and the air raid went off um my her father grabbed her they went into the air raid shelter of the house Did get bombed, and I actually, when I went back, the hole was still there. Um, And she said that the only thing she could remember was how much she was crying because she was so upset that she lost this hot dog. And she's a little kid. Um, You know, the only story I got out of my grandpa, now he was a little older than my grandmother. So during World War II, he would have been um, 13, 14, 15 years old. And he told me that. He and his friends used to make extra pocket money by, they would lay in the ditches at the airport and they would count the airplanes and what kind of airplanes they were. And then they would run to some man and give him this information. And that's how they would make spare pocket money for candy and things like that. And that's apparently everything he was willing to tell me. Um, I do know he grew up very, very poor uh, my grandparents—they got married in 1952, and at that point, um, he was already in the military. But you know, my my grandmother's family didn't want him to get married in his army uniform. And I'll, I'll be happy to share pictures. And if anybody can identify the uniform for me, I I don't have any talent for that kind of thing. If you do, and can tell me what unit he might have been in or something like that, I would so appreciate it. But. Um, you know, he, um, he didn't even have a suit. So they, they bought him a suit. And the two wedding photos I have of them is one of them is their wedding photo, he's in a suit, he has white gloves, she has flowers and everything. And the other photo is the actual um, photo announcement of their wedding. And in that one, he's wearing the uniform. Now, it was, not okay for him to be out of uniform, even for his wedding day, he would have gotten in trouble for that. So the photo of him in the suit is something that we really kept only in the family. And my grandma had it tucked away. And she said, you know, at the time, if anybody else had seen this, he would have been in in huge trouble. So I don't know how accurate that is. Unfortunately, both my grandparents have passed, so I can't ask them, but um, they, they do. They, they look like two very scared but happy kids in the photos
1: i'm intrigued by the the counting of the aircraft and then going to some guy and getting paid that sounds rather dodgy
0: you know um reading about the situation um everything was dodgy and you'll see most of the 20th uh Twentieth century uh Czechoslovakia and history is you're a regular person and you didn't ask a lot of questions because the less you knew, the better off you were.
1: Yeah, you're probably you're probably right there. So what about your your mother and, and father?
0: Yeah, um, you know, my, my mom, she was born in 1955. My father was born in 1945, and his his family hailed from Moravia. So they were quote-unquote peasant country people. Now, as far as occupations and things like that, my grandpa was a locksmith. And my grandma was a, a clerk, like a bureaucrat, office worker type of person. Um, my mom said that she she remembers getting rides to school on my grandpa's motorcycle. So she said um, my Uncle Pavel would hold on in the back. My mom would go on the front near the handlebars And my uncle Milan was still too small to go to school. So that's how they went to school and grandpa took them. And um, yeah, other than that, my father's family, I don't really know that much. Um, You know, I look at my birth certificate and it lists everything about my mother. It doesn't list his birthplace, doesn't list his father, nothing. So just all I know is his mother's name and that they were from Moravia.
1: Were any members of either family members of the party, the Communist Party?
0: Um. Yeah, actually, strangely enough, my father's mother. So, you know, later on, um, apparently there were a lot of fights between my father and his mother because he refused to become a member of the party. But she was and she'd been a foreman at a factory. And, you know, my my mom said that you know, during one of these fights, she, she confronted her about this. And my grandmother had said, you know, I, I did it for the workers there. It would have been harder on them. At least I took care of them. So she viewed it as she was doing something good for others. Um, and because she was a party member, you know, my father was able to go to university, which, you know, you, you wouldn't think party political affiliations factored into what kind of education you could get but they did they they factored into pretty much every aspect of your life
1: yeah so so while your father's mother would have said she was doing it for the workers being a member of the party obviously had benefits above not being a member of the party
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely and You know, that's another misconception that I I kind of want to put out there for people is that, you know, people think that we were godless, that we didn't have religion, that it was banned. Um, But my father's mother, she used to take me to church when I stayed with her. She was a Moravian old believer. You know, you went to church. Um, I do know the the main doors were locked, so you had to kind of knock on the side door. And at the time, um, churches were allowed to operate. Um, priests were allowed to operate, but you had to tote the party line. You had to be registered. They, they really scrutinized them. Um, you know, Moravia was a little bit more religious, Catholic-leaning than other parts of, of Czech at the time. Um, but yeah, she I used to go to church with her. Um, we, we all celebrated Christmas everyone had a Christmas tree. Um, you know, you would get presents and they would say, oh, they're, which means from baby Jesus. You know, once we came to the United States, um, my father made me go to Sunday school. He made me go to church. Um, when I went back to check in 1991, I was baptized at a church there. Um, you know, so that, that's another misconception. Yes, there was religion. Um, but it was scrutinized, it was frowned upon, it was regulated, and they, they really were not happy with people that expressed um, religious leanings of any kind. So if you were religious, you kept it to yourself, you kept it within your family, you didn't put it out there, um, you know, things like that.
1: I mean that that's really interesting with your your father's mother being a member of the party, but also being very religious as well. It would seem to be a contradiction.
0: and and that's what it what it really is. There's a lot of contradictions, and that's why I said that nuance and you know it's complicated um, because all of these things, you really were navigating this very kind of complex set of unwritten rules in all areas of your life. So, for example, my grandmother would take me to church, but it's not something I would tell my friends about. Now, nobody in my family said, hey, we're going to church, but you can't tell anyone. But even as a child, you knew. Yeah, this is something you don't tell your teacher about on Monday morning. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important.
1: Get the sought after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to slash donate to find out more. And I think that that is a, another interesting aspect there that, you know, I, and I've heard this again in other interviews where you're almost having to live this schizophrenic life. Where your public face or your face around people who are not part of your inner family is different to, obviously, you know what what you do within your family.
0: Yeah, I mean, within your family, you know, it's kind of that thing where you're in your inner circle, and you can complain as much as you want. As a little kid, you can complain, you can whine, you can be mad at your mother, you can be anything, but don't you dare cry or or anything out on the street and embarrass your family and i don't know if that's just a european thing i don't know you know how much socialism and communism played into it um but you know even as a child like i was a very chatty little girl and i would if i was being a little too loud my grandparents would say the walls have ears it's you know and things like don't blab our business everywhere and and little i mean it could be little things like oh you know my grandparents are getting to travel and th- th- this and that and the other no you don't you don't talk about anything um with people outside of your family um you know having people come into your home you know your home was kind of your inside your sanctuary i as a little kid i don't ever remember having friends over um you know you met with your your play friends outside at the parks your parents would take you to the zoo together and things like that but as far as having friends over in your home to come and play my parents having friends over you didn't really do that as much
1: again you've got it spot on there around i think it's more around not wanting to stand out or attract attention as well, it's sort of like try and just keep your head down and not attract the attention of officials or anybody in a in a position of power.
0: Yeah, and it, you know you you're capturing it correctly. Um, you know, because a lot of the things that I get from people asking, well, why couldn't you just fly under the radar or just stay out of politics and things like that, and just explaining to them how all, all encompassing and all pervasive this was in your daily life. Um, I I don't think people that haven't lived through it can truly understand it. Um, You know, I had a typical, typical childhood. Both of my parents worked. I went to nursery school, then I went to preschool, then I went to kindergarten, you know, things like the government, they had nature retreat places set up. So first school, trip all of the kids you know and and I mean we left when I was about six so this was when I was younger they would take us from school for a week and we would go on the school trip with our teachers and our fellow students not our families not our parents and we'd be out in nature just you know skiing or hiking or camping and doing all the kind of scouting type things um and you really you had to fit in um I mean, I remember even as a child, I kind of felt like there was something wrong that, you know, the the things that were happening at home, I wasn't supposed to repeat outside. Um, You know, when I was made to do things at school, you know, a lot of times my parents would say, it's like, you know, I would say, oh, I don't want to take a nap. I hate taking a nap. Can't I just lay there with my eyes closed like or read a book? And my parents would say, you lay down, you close your eyes, you pretend you're sleeping. Doesn't matter. Just we don't want to deal with the issues like just do what they tell you and and that's what you do what you did
1: in in your notes, I was intrigued you put in there about your your mother's childhood, and I was fascinated by um that she had a summer job where she went to Greece to pick olives, which was obviously outside of the Warsaw Pact.
0: Yeah. Um, a, yet another misconception that people have, um, you know, we weren't as cut off as people think. Um, there was communication. Information did get through. Um, for example, you know, I learned later, you know, my father was listening to Radio Free Europe in the evenings. I mean, we didn't live anywhere special. We lived on the outskirts of Prague in a apartment complex. You know, I have a cookbook that my mom got. It was it was a gift in 1980, I think, before I was born. And it's all about it's um European foods, like trendy foods of Europe. And it has, you know, all the recipes from France, Great Britain, Italy, Greece. Um, There's a photo in that book of how Czech wives should, um, you know, when you're setting up your refrigerator. You know, here's where everything would go. And in the door in the refrigerator, there's a bottle of Coca Cola. There's a bottle of French champagne. So we weren't completely cut off. Books by Jules Verne, Alexandre Dumas, like all of those things, they were translated, they were published, they were, people were reading these things. Um, Yeah, as far as my mom, yeah, um, you have these things. um, It's called a summer job, Brigada. And as a teenager, you would sign up for this. You would go, everything was as a group. So you would go in a group, usually with your school, and you would get sent for, okay, for two weeks. You get put on a bus, and you get driven somewhere to do some kind of labor, and you get you get out a little bit. And my mother said, you know, basically they worked six days a week. It was hard work, but they got to be in the sun, they got to swim in the ocean, they got to eat different food, they just got to experience life a little differently. I always try to kind of describe why people were, were yearning so much for these things. And it's the best I can imagine, think about it as, as, you know, when my grandparents were children, and there was war on, food was rationed, or there was no food. So you finally got potatoes and roast chicken. And you were happy to have it. And under this system, you could have all the potatoes and all the chicken you could want. Fantastic. And, you know, it depended on your experiences and your generation. Um, But my grandparents said, you know what? We have a warm place to live. We're stable. We have enough food. We have the basics of life that we want. Like, we're okay. For the younger generation, you know, where, okay, I grew up and all I've ever eaten is potatoes and chicken. But I hear that over there, other people are eating hamburgers. Now I want a hamburger. I just want different. So, you know, attitudes during the Cold War, it also it depended on what country you lived in. Because not all countries were the same. Um, you know, my mom did get to go to Greece. You know, of course, you got a permit just for that one trip. You were very... You're watched over by um, the teachers that went with you. And, of course, you had your family back home. So if anything happened, your family was kind of collateral to make sure that you didn't misbehave. Now, if something had happened on that trip and maybe she wandered away for a day, you know, like teenagers do stupid things, she wandered away for a day, maybe goofed off with her friends. Well, when she came back to the Czech Republic... Okay, that's it. That was your last travel experience. We're never giving you a travel permit again. So there were there were always consequences.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued by that cookbook as to what the British recipes were because we're not renowned (laughs) for our culinary expertise.
0: Um, well you know what? I, I gotta say Beef Wellington is in there. And it was let's see they're they're actually
1: got it there have you
0: i do um i'm right in front of me (laughs) it is um when after my grandparents passed and they cleaned out their apartment you know i i kind of tried to get my hands on everything i could um but yes but what they say about british cuisine is that it's very hearty very basic um but not as sophisticated as the french cuisine which uses a lot of herbs so I think that's probably a fair description (laughs) that was so they also included commentary you know things like that um you know I have a uh, Czech German dictionary or a conversation dictionary and you know it's I think it was meant specifically for people that went out on trade deals and things like that to other countries um because it talks a lot about that and how to say goods how to Things like the word palette and cases and things like that are in there, but words like communism, socialism, president, premier, nothing is in there about politics. Absolutely none of the words in there could refer to politics.
1: Your your mother did get uh, a trip to another country, I think, later on. But it was within the Warsaw Pact. She had a trip to Moscow, didn't she?
0: (laughs) Yes, she did. Um, You know, which, like I was talking before about how, you know, yes, we were all in the Eastern Bloc, we were all under communism, but it varied country to country. So, yeah, um, if you were a student, especially, um, and you wanted to go to Moscow and, you know, see the birthplace and the home of communism. Um, that was a very easy permit to get. So my, my mom and a friend of hers said, eh, why don't we do it? So, um, they went, they went by train and she said it was, it was not comfortable sleeper train. It was very dirty. Um, she said at one point on one of their trains, you know, that the bathroom on the train was literally a hole in the floor and you kind of just had to squat and hope for the best. Um, but yeah, so th- they went to Moscow. Um, the first thing they had to do was the visit to Lenin's tomb because you had to, you just had to do that. Um, they weren't happy about it. You you know it was apparently they went when it was cold, and you would stand in for hours in line, just hours. Um, and she said, luckily, um, somebody near them had a bottle of vodka, so they were, <laughs> they were passing the bottle around everybody that was waiting in line. Um, and then when they got to, you know, the entranceway of it, they got a stamp in a little booklet. And then when they got back to Czechoslovakia, they had to show their school the this, this stamp they got to prove they'd been there. Um, but, you know, so I was asking her like, oh, my gosh, you, you know, you, you went to Moscow in, like the late 70s. What was it like? Like, wow. Um, and she said that, you know, her main impression was really she was shocked at how depressing and poor it was. At that time, you know, it was none of those beautiful, brightly colored kind of paintings um, and and gorgeous houses and little shops and and things you see today. She said it was just depressing. Um, And she had always thought that, you know, Czech was very poorly off because in the media, you know, Moscow and Russia was was depicted as beautiful countrysides and very cultured, modern city. Um, so she she showed up and she was just shocked. She thought Czech comparatively was poor. So she was ready to to go to this beautiful metropolitan city. And she, she just said the people, they had nothing. Like they mo- bemoaned the lack of clothes and things like that in Czechoslovakia at the time. But she said, you know, the housekeeping girls at her hotel, they offered to buy her stockings right off her feet. Because they could, they couldn't get nylons, and she really didn't think about it. But you know, she said, "I, I went out and I looked around. Yeah, all the women were wearing these scratchy, woolen knitted socks." Um, so you know, yeah, the housekeeper girls—they they, they kind of said, like, "Whatever out of your suitcase you're willing to sell, we'll take it."
1: So your your parents get married in in 1980, and uh, they're living on the the outsp- skirts of Prague and you're born uh, the same year.
0: Um, I, I think so. I you know I, I, I'm not exactly sure what the timing is. I really don't know the date of their wedding. Um, I have one photo of when they got married. My dad is wearing a very swanky blue velvet suit um, with some with a nice ruffled shirt. Uh, my mom's got you know what you would think of as a typical wedding dress of the time. Um, but they're getting married at the um, at the local marriage office. So it's a room. There's a big you know, you would walk up to this big table in the middle of the room. You would sign your witnesses would sign, you know, and I have this photo of the two of them. And above it is the uh, the Czechoslovak the just the red, the kind of red thing with the star on top with the Czech line in it. So, the official seal of the government's above that table. It, it, it looks very romantic. But yeah, they, <laughs> they got married. And, uh, you know, and I had a typical kind of basic childhood. We were a very tight knit family. Um, so, it kind of revolved around my mother's grandparents. Once a month, we would go to Moravia to visit my other grandmother, um, summer, you know, vacations. I would be with my grandparents. We did have a khata or a dacha or country house. Um, So I ended up spending a lot of my summertime out there. Um, You know, my family was very lucky to have one of those because that meant you had fresh produce. Um, And it was very advantageous because (laughs) if anybody has ever described a, you know, communist era supermarket to you, um, You know, bleak would be the word to define it, um, which fresh produce was almost never something you found at a grocery store. Um, You would have little produce stands, um, but it wasn't something like where you had to get a permit to have those. And then you wouldn't have contracting with certain farmers and certain farming collectives to get your produce. So it wasn't something like where you, you had a garden, you had extra produce. You set up a stand and you were selling tomatoes on the side of the road. You couldn't do that. You would get in big trouble. But out in the country, people kind of did that anyway. So, again, nuance.
1: When when you were at school, do you remember being ha- having any, any sort of ideological teaching?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, pretty much. You know, it the, the other fun crazy thing kind of with it is that a lot of these things were subtle. They weren't um, you know, they weren't things that hit you over the head. There were things that gradually soaked into you. Um so, you know, yeah, I would I would be at school um and I remember we were painting, you know, we were coloring these coloring book things of tulips. And me being me, you know, I made myself a beautiful green tulip with some blue stems and leaves and and the teacher looked at it and she said, "No. The stem is supposed to be green and the flower is red." She ripped it up. She gave me a new one. She said, "You better hurry up. The other kids are almost done." And that's 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 kind of how it worked. Um you really had to fit in. Um And if you didn't, you know, my teacher would talk to my parents. So you would get in trouble for something at school and then you would get home and then you would get in trouble at home for getting in trouble at school because the teacher talking to your parents about how you were a problem was not good for your parents. Because if anything necessarily happened, you know, the government could go Um, You know, if let's say my mom had done something that was politically out of line, um, the government could have easily, okay, let's do a background check. Oh, how does she take care of her child? Let's go talk to the teacher. Oh, her child is disobedient. Her child, this, that, and the other. Okay, well, maybe this child is better off being raised in a state home rather than with this degenerate parent. So it's a little bit of kind of a twisted mentality. But yeah, you kind of tried to fly under the radar as much as possible.
1: Did you go away on holiday anywhere or was it always to uh, Moravia?
0: No. Um, So, for my grandparents, because they were older, they were retired, you know, they have a family, um, you know, where would they be going? Um, And I, I think a lot of people also don't understand that. Even within the Eastern Bloc country, so even if you were behind the, the Iron Curtain, you still had to get a permit to travel outside the country. So Romania and Czechoslovakia, yes, we're both part of the Eastern Bloc. Yes, we're all communists. Yes, we're all subject to the Soviets. But if a Romanian wanted to come on holiday to Czech, they still needed a permit. And vice versa. So, yes, um, you needed a permit and the permit would say, um, you know, who's traveling, how many days you're allowed to travel, where you're allowed to travel. So what you would do is you would buy these resort packages. And as part of that, you would you would have a designated resort that you were staying at. A lot of times there would be a bus That would go specifically, okay, this bus is on Tuesday is going from Prague to this resort at Lake Balaton. Everybody who has this vacation package is going there. Now, when you bought this vacation package, you got a book of vouchers. And the vouchers were what you used for, you know, your accommodations, for your food, um, your tickets to, you know, go to places and things like that. Um, because there was also a limit for how much money you were allowed to bring out of the country. A lot of people don't realize this. Um, And, you know, you always kind of hear about the checkpoints and this and that. Um, But there were checkpoints around all the borders of the country. So even if you were going from Czechoslovakia to Lake Balaton, we used to go there, it's in Hungary. Um, you would go to the checkpoint, which we called Controla, and everybody would get off the bus, you know, depending on how how the guys at the Controla were feeling that day, depending on what kind of trip it was, depending on who it was. Um, I mean, my grandparents at this point were both retired. They were in their 50s. You know, for them to get a permit to go on one of these trips was relatively easy because they're two old people and they have a lot of family in check. It's not like they're a big flight risk. Um, so they would always take me with them. And yeah, we would get on this bus. Um, we would go to Lake Balaton and usually went for like two or three weeks. And <laughs> the, the place that we stayed had kind of those semi-permanent tents, almost if you think of Boy Scout tents, it's kind of like with those big wooden platform bottoms and then the tent part up top. Um, so we had our rolled up mattresses and we took them with us and, you know, that there was a little beach area. Um, you ate food at this eatery cafeteria place. And, you know, I was as a little kid, I was always used to in check where if you went to a restaurant, you paid with money, but here we were paying with these, um, little stamp things out of a little book. And I just thought it was the most hilarious thing, you know? And I, I was like, well, if we can just pay for, for restaurants with stamps, I, like when we get back to check, let's just buy stamps and go to restaurants all the time. You know, you're a little kid, you don't know any better. Um, but but I learned later that there, there was a voucher system um, because they didn't want people to bring money out and there was a limit. So when you were at these Controla things, they would check your documents. They would check how much money they you had with you. Um, If something seemed fishy, um, they would go through all of your luggage, make sure you're not bringing things in and out that you shouldn't be. Um, And, you know, people just kind of, it was par for the course. You expected that to happen.
1: Yeah, and I think that that level of having to show documentation is obviously a very, Large feature of of living in, in a Warsaw Pact country, but earlier on you mentioned the the Rodney List, which is again another form of documentation that you needed to have. Can you just talk us through what what that ha- what that was?
0: Absolutely, and it's another aspect of life that I think Westerners, you know, will it will help Westerners grasp the the level of control. Um, because it's one of those things that, you know, check, you don't think about it. Um, and when we explain it to people say, oh, birth certificate, you know, you think about it in the Western sense. But so a Rodney list, which literally means a list of your family or a reporting of your family. Um, it was a little document identity paper thing that you carried. It was given out by your local, local government where you were born. Um, and a copy would be kept in the Central Records Office in Prague. So it basically was a document that pertained to you and there were extra copies. So there wasn't something like you could take it to a local office and have things tweaked because the main copy was always somewhere else where the police could access it if they needed to. Um, so a list, um, you know, a lot of times people ask me, You know, oh, when you're applying for these jobs and you're applying to university, like, why couldn't you just lie about the biographical data? And it's because, you know, when they're doing the background check on you to see if you have a clean background to go to university or to get that job, they can just go to the government and pull a copy of this form. And then they can go and pull the cop, the forms for your parents and your grandparents. And here's how they can do this. Um, because the Rodney List, it does have, you know, just like in the West, it's got your name, your birth name, where you were born, the date that you were born. It, you have kind of like a social security number type thing. Um, so you have all of that. But it also lists your parents, their birthplaces, Their current addresses and their occupation. And then under each parent, it also lists their parents, including, you know, maiden names and things like that, which is how I know the names of my great grandparents because I'm looking at my mom's Rodney list and all of this information is on it. Now, after communism fell, the Rodney list um, that was amended. So the original one I have when we left has all this information on about me, but when I needed to get an updated copy, and that in two thousand and twelve, the the government has changed it. So the only things that appear on the Rodney list now is, you know, it's it's just my basic information, and then my parents' names and his birth date, my mother's name and her birth date. And that's it. It doesn't have all of the other information. Um, but, you know, and that's why people ask, you know, how how could, how could um, this giant bureaucracy know? Oh, well, mm, interesting. It looks like your grandfather owned his own business. You know, it looks like you don't have the right background to get into university. At the most, we'll let you maybe into this technical school and you could learn a trade skill. And that's kind of how things worked.
1: And did it carry other details, like if you were a member of the party or you were, you know, there was some criminal record against you or something like that? Or was it purely who all your relations were and occupations?
0: Um, so for that list, yes, you got it purely um, on who all of your relations were and what they did. And that's something that you had from birth. Um, when you, if you wanted to become a member of the party, you joined that as an adult. Um, you had to take classes, you had to attend meetings, and you actually got a little red book. Um, you know, it had your name, it looked like an ID book, but every time you went to a meeting, it would be written down what the meeting was and you get a little stamp that you had gone um so that's that's how that worked if you actually wanted to become a member of the party you had to um apply you had to have an extensive background check you had to have people vouch for you um it it was really it was an involved decision
1: lots of documentation now i understand that your your mother worked in human resources but there she came up against uh, limitations that you wouldn't necessarily expect in the West.
0: Yeah, um, you know, my mother, she'd studied economics and, and accounting um, and she got a job in the HR department of a very large company. Um, you know, again, being basic checks who'd really never done anything or gone anywhere. Um, she passed all the background checks just fine. Um, and pretty much she... She worked in an office and it was considered a very good job. Um, You know, for her, she, um, I don't think she became a member of the party. Um, I know she'd gone to meetings um, and I asked her about this and she said, well, you know, she was working in the HR department and she got a promotion and she was all excited. She was happy about it. And then a week later they came to her and they said, you know, if you want to keep this promotion, you, in within the next six months, you have to start going through this communist party school. And the understanding with it was that at the end of that training, you would do the process to get into the party. Um, you know, again, it's complicated. Um, By this time, my father was kind of going through his own. Um, He was slowly getting disillusioned with the situation. So there was that. Um, There was also this kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Um, You know, everyone is Czech. But if you joined the party, it, it was almost a little bit like putting up a wall between you and and other people, because people now felt like, I can't be, I can't talk freely with you. I can't really, you know, because just in case. Um, so it it wasn't, it wasn't a decision you took lightly. Um, a lot of people did it to further their career prospects. Um, but there was also a trade-off in that you might have some personal repercussions happening in your private life. Yeah.
1: Now, that's not the end of Drea's story. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we talk about Drea and her family's defection to the West. There is extra information such as videos, photos and links in our episode notes, which will show as a link wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group, where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo-level members who are contributing a generous thirty US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Mark Labance... Stephen Kowalich, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Ryan Vlaming, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com donate. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.